Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament Lectionary Podcast. My name is Paul Essa, a Hebrew Bible PhD student at Yale University. And I'm Tim McNinch, Assistant Professor of Hebrew Bible at Christian Theological Seminary. Rachel and Rosie, our other co-hosts, are off this week. Those of you following the lectionary may have noticed that during the Easter season, the Revised Common Lectionary swaps in readings from the Book of Acts as the first reading. So we decided this would be a great opportunity to delve into the lectionary psalms and immerse ourselves in the poetry of the Hebrew Bible. The psalm given for this week is Psalm 16, and we have Paul, our newest co-host, walking us through it. So Paul, what struck you as useful here in Psalm 16? Yay! Well, these are 11 verses of beautiful words, and I think I would want to do three things here. That is to ask, what kind of a text is this? Zoom in on some of the major themes, then highlight some two verses before suggesting some preaching tips. Awesome. I love when there's a good outline. So walk us (laughs) through it, Paul. So the question first, what kind of a passage is this? Of course, it is a psalm. So we know we are dealing with poetry, not prose. That is for sure. But more than that, I would like to say it seems like a song or a prayer to me. Hmm. Uh, but by it being a song, I'm thinking more of song lyrics. I don't think it will pass through as a rap lyric, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Just because it seems less rhymy for a rap lyric. I might be wrong, but it de- it is definitely a song. I would like to hear somebody try to do it as a rap. That would be cool. Yeah, to rap on some, some 16. <laughs> yeah. The other is prayer. Note how it begins in verse 1 with, Protect me, O God. I think that falls in line with what we might identify quite accurately as taking the standard prayer formula in the Bible. You know, there is God, there is a person, and there is a request. As we read on, moreover, the prayer grows beyond making requests. It sort of blends declarative statements, something that seems a little like theological, theological statements about God's being and deeds with the speaker speaking to themselves in a meditative you know, fashion. Hmm. In other words, this text, to me, exemplifies a more compounded kind of prayer, perhaps even a better kind of prayer, by moving beyond asking for things from God to affirming trust in God based on God's deeds while also uplifting oneself. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's great. This is like prayer as speaking to oneself, in the presence of God. I think that's that's really insightful. I, another example might be Psalm 103. Bless the Holy One, O my soul, and all that's within me, bless God's holy name. The the my soul there is is the subject of the verb bless. A, a, it's this is a direct address to the psalmist by the psalmist, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think that that dynamic is really helpful to bring out. Uh, but you said there was another thing that struck you here? Yes, there is, Uh, which is the reflective and emotion-filled nature of the passage. Mm -hmm. You know, from Mm -hmm. verse 9 forward, there's gladness, samach, right? There's joy, gil, there's batak, security or trust or confidence. There's naim, pleasure, delightfulness. Also, there's the mention of body parts such as the soul, the heart, the body that can help us as humans experience God and the world emotionally. Fun Mm -hmm. fact here. The NRSV translates two different words as heart. In mm-hmm. verse 9, there is lev, 
which we expect, right? That's the commonest, you know, word in the Hebrew Bible for heart. Mm-hmm. But there's also kilya in verse 7. Kilya literally translates as kidney, but it is figuratively used here to represent the interior self, the mm-hmm. inner being. Right? Yeah, yeah, that, that always <laughs> makes me chuckle a little bit because... Sometimes my kidneys instruct me at night, like the psalm says, but it's, that yeah. instruction is usually to get up and use the bathroom. So <laughs> <laughs> right. my, my kidneys instruct me at night. But I, I like the way that you talk here about the kidney as a representation of our interiority in That's the way right. that we might talk about like a gut feeling. Exactly. Right? It's, it's, these are exactly. our, our innards speaking to us. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I bring all of this up to say that the emotive nature of the passage, as it is for most Psalms, I'm sure, reminds me of how much of our relationship with God depends on how we feel about things and about God. For me, the key word is how we feel, feelings, Mm -hmm. right? We talk a lot about the place of the mind in worship in this part of the world, but perhaps passages like this are meant to remind us that our walk with God also requires our kilia, our interior self, all of our inner being, in particular, our hearts and souls. Yeah, yeah, that's very well said, Paul. And, and really, that would be a great preaching angle that preachers could take, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would definitely encourage preachers to look into that. Another possible preaching angle is in verses 5 through 6. The use of the words portion or lot, boundary lines, and a goodly heritage— That is the use of space or spatial language as a metaphor to talk about a relationship with God, especially the benefits one gets for choosing to trust God. Mm. The main thing here for me is how the prayer implicitly contrasts relationship with God with possessions such as land allotment. And if we listen very carefully, it looks like the psalm is saying that Others may have inherited an actual portion of land or a cap field with good things, but they, I mean the ones in the Psalms, the Judahites, received God's self as their portion, and that in God they have received a much better position. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And and when you tie verse four into that as well, it makes the point even clearer. It's it's making a comparison about whom they worship, right? Mm-hmm. In verse four, others choose some other god mm-hmm. and therefore encounter multiplied sorrows. Mm-hmm. But in verse five, this Judahite person praying chooses God as their portion and experiences a quote unquote goodly heritage, as the NRSV puts it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, note that the benefits of their choosing Yahweh does not end until verses 11, right? Where God grants a path of life, a joyful presence and eternal pleasures. You know, may I take this chance to suggest that a great preaching point from this might be to remind people that following God confers benefits. Hmm. You know, it is hard and bizarre, but as suggested by this passage, it is not without benefits. Here, the benefits are things like, you know, counsel or wisdom, you know, which comes through instruction. There's also guidance. There's also a comforting presence. There's rest, there's security, there's confidence. It's all of these things. But I'm sure God can also apportion various benefits not listed here, you know, according to the needs of God's people out there. Mm-hmm. And I think this is very important, especially for those who follow Jesus or follow God, and do all that they can, but the stresses of life convince them to believe that following God is meaningless because, you know, it profits nothing. 
a little story here. I remember in 2014 visiting northern Nigeria, a place that is still today wrestling with terrorism and religious violence. My time there intersected with recent attacks on churches, and I spent some time visiting members of those persecuted churches. I'm talking about you know, churches that were bombed, members attacked, some killed, you know, all the violent things. And although most of them returned so courageously to worship the very next Sunday, there were some who questioned where God was in the midst of all of this. In these kinds of moments, I think bringing up Psalm 60 might be a great reminder that God is a refuge, like we see in verse 1. Mm. And indeed, in verse 10, the prayer recounts how God does not give up on the faithful to death. It actually uses Sheol, mm-hmm. the common uh, Hebrew phrase for where dead people go. Right, right. Yeah, I, I'm always amazed by that kind of resilience. And in your story, Paul, is a good reminder that the benefits of knowing God are not necessarily the avoidance of pain or loss, right. but rather a kind of divine accompaniment through them. Mm-hmm. And Psalm 16, as you say, witnesses to that kind of benefit. Mm-hmm. So uh, before we end, are there any pitfalls that you might warn preachers about? Oh, yes, definitely. I didn't tell you everything there is in verses 4 through 5. So let's go back there. My caution is to be aware of othering, you know, othering other people. The mm-hmm. ass versus them sort of phenomenon. And, you know, the supersessionist descriptions of people who are different, especially where the text says, those who choose another God multiply their sorrows, right? That's very clearly written there. Mm-hmm. It is easy to read this and prepare a sermon that looks, you know, at others as, you know, in error because they worship idols or they do, you know, things differently or they believe differently. Or to read even the bad things, the sorrowful things that happen to people as a negative consequence of the ways, their ways of being. My caution here is to be aware of ordering and supersessionism if you want to say something at all about verses 4 and 5. Yeah, yeah, that, that's right. I, I don't know what you think, Paul, but from my perspective, it seems like um, this othering is kind of baked into the psalm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't think it's actually a misinterpretation to read the poem as really endorsing the othering of outsiders. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think this is a place where we can put that perspective from this poem into conversation with other scriptures that call for the inclusion and blessing of outsiders. Oh yeah. And that recognize the dignity of everyone. Mm-hmm. But that's a that's a really great pitfall to identify because I know sometimes when I'm preaching I can just, you know, sort of grab the perspective of the text and run with it, yeah. forgetting that I might be actually perpetuating some harmful ideas. That's a very good way to put it, Tim. I like that. I like. Thank you for clarifying that for sure. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. that that's why um, part of exegesis is the work of I, both identifying the profound truths of the text and bringing them to the surface, while also thinking critically about the perspectives of the author in their own very human social context. And, and I think you've modeled that really well here, Paul. Uh, thanks for your work on this one. You're welcome, Tim. I loved it. Well, preachers, we hope that you found something useful in this conversation. Uh, If you did, tell us about it. Reach out on Facebook or email us at firstreadingpodcast at gmail.com. Check out our website, firstreadingpodcast.com, where you can find our past episodes, merchandise, and donate to help keep the podcast going. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so that you get new episodes as soon as they drop. 
First Reading is produced by Paul and me, along with Rosie Candiful and Rachel Wren. Thank you all for listening. Until next time, I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Paul Esser. Have a wonderful week.